I want to say what a delight it is to be here and uh, to see this marvelous crowd on a Monday evening. God bless you. And I believe that he's going to reward you because you took the time to be here today. Tonight I'm going to speak to you on the topic of Jesus versus Muhammad. And I want to begin by saying that uh, let us remind ourselves that Muslims are not our enemy. But unfortunately, they belong to a religion that is oppressive and very aggressive. About a month ago, I was in a cab in Chicago, and uh, I always engage the cab driver, always talking with no matter who he is. And I uh, was talking to this cab driver who is a Muslim, and we were talking about the Quran and so forth. And I said, if you converted to the Christian faith, should you be put to death? And he said, yes. And I said, well, who would do it? And he said, well, he said, maybe members of the family. He wasn't sure, some kind of authority. But this much he believed is that if he were to convert to Christianity, he should be killed. On Al Jazeera television, someone said, if we stop killing people, if they convert, in effect, what he said is we might have a mass exodus from Islam. If you talk to women who are part of the Islamic culture, they will tell you about the oppression, the way in which they are treated. But oftentimes what they have to say is simply this, what choice do we have? Now I want to say that if you're here today, and I hope that there are Muslims that are present, you are welcome in this church. I hope that you listen carefully. If you disagree, I hope that you come up later on and we can have a discussion because we'd like to get to know you. And we'd like to be able to dialogue with you and understand you better and hope that you understand us better as well. To begin tonight, I want you to visualize that this wonderful church building has all of the chairs taken out of it. What rugs from one wall to another, and this church has become a mosque. And uh, Muslims from all over the area come to pray in this church. I want you to visualize that happening or to have that happen in your church, wherever it may be that you attend. I visualize that at the Moody Church and think of what the Moody Church would be. And because it's a prominent church in the city of Chicago, it would actually have four minarets. And people from all over Chicagoland, Muslims, would come to pray to Allah at the Moody Church. This past uh, summer, Rebecca and I had the opportunity of visiting the seven sites of the churches of Revelation. The churches to whom Jesus Christ took the time to dictate those letters that we know very well. As we went to those churches, I was impressed with the fact that there are no visible churches. Oh yes, I know there are some churches in Istanbul that are open and perhaps also in Smyrna, some of the large cities. But in most of the smaller cities, uh, there are no churches allowed. Now there may be believers, they meet and having Bible studies in homes and so forth. But it's not as if you can get a permit to build a church and to actually say this is a church and encourage people to come and, and to dialogue and to have people converted to Christianity. That certainly is not allowed. And as I thought of the fact that these were the seven prominent churches, I said to myself, what do these churches today under Islam the churches that Islam has crushed, what do they have to say to the American church today? I want you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn to Revelation chapter 1, 
And I'll just simply be referring to very few verses today, but enough to remind you of what the text of Scripture actually says. You'll notice that in Revelation chapter 1, John receives a marvelous vision of Jesus. And it says in verse 12 of chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. And on and on, this beautiful uh, beautiful description goes. But notice that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. And if you read the rest of the chapter, you discover that the lampstands are the seven churches. I want to begin tonight by reminding you that the church is exceedingly important to Jesus. He gave himself up for her. And today Jesus goes up and down the aisles in our churches as well, observing us, seeing us, burdened for what we are doing, concerned about our sin, grieved because of our sin, encouraged because of our commitment, and the church is number one on Jesus Christ's agenda. Now, with that background, what I'd like to do tonight, and thank you for giving me permission to do so, I would like to give you seven or eight lessons that these churches of Revelation have to teach us today. And some of you are actually taking notes. This person near the front here, this sister, she's taking notes. I always say that front row on earth is front row in heaven. (laughs) Which says something about those of you who are in the back. All right? Are we ready? Let's plunge in tonight. I'll give them to you slowly enough so that you can copy them down, and I hope that you think about them. Take them back to your own churches and ponder these lessons. Number one, the existence of any church or group of churches cannot be taken for granted. The existence of any church or group of churches cannot be taken for granted. Please come with me to Istanbul, ancient Constantinople, and let us go into the Church of Holy Wisdom. Hagia Sophia. This massive church was dedicated in 535 A.D. Imagine it. The opening speech is given by Justinian, the emperor, who says, O Solomon, I have outdone thee, bragging about the fact that his church evidently was bigger than Solomon's temple. All right, let's do the math. It is the largest church in Christendom from 535 all the way to 1453 when the Ottoman Turks came and captured Constantinople. For nearly, what is it, about 900 years, it is the largest church in Christendom. Eastern Orthodox, to be sure. Those of you who know church history, this is the church where the split took place between East and West, and Eastern Orthodoxy went one direction, and Roman Catholicism went in another direction. For 900 years, it is a church. 1453, the Ottoman Turks capture Constantinople. The walls are breached. People run into the church, believe believing surely that God is going to protect them in the church. But massacres even took place within the church. There was blood all over the floor, most assuredly. Even priests that were offering the mass were massacred. In all, in Constantinople, at least 5,000 people were impaled, which is one of the most painful ways to die. 
And according to my Muslim guide, instantly, days and weeks later, the 12 leading churches of Constantinople were turned into mosques. And of course, shortly afterwards, the other churches were closed. Do we remember that when we look at a map of the Middle East, when you look at Iran and Iraq and all of those countries that we see and hear on the news every single day, that all of those countries were at one time at least nominally Christian and the landscape was dotted with churches. As a matter of fact, now, of course, later, hundreds and thousands of churches have been turned into mosques. And that has certainly happened in Egypt and the other countries that I have spoken about. In fact, my Muslim guide was very kind when I was there five years ago. I was also there last summer. But when I was there five years ago, he made it plain that just like Christianity overcame paganism and uh, established its superiority, in the very same way, Islam has shown its superiority over Christianity by conquering Christian lands, by turning churches into mosques, showing the superiority of Muhammad over Jesus. Let's go to Europe. If you were in Europe today, you'd know that the large cathedrals are for the most part empty. As a matter of fact, they are referred to somewhat lovingly as the tomb of God, the tombs of God. Many of these churches are being turned into bookstores. They're being turned into hotels, and many of them are being turned into mosques in Europe today. I think that whenever a church dies in America, we ought to have a funeral. There is something so sad about the fact that a church has not been able to survive and that the church would actually die. Yes, indeed, we should have a funeral if a church dies. I heard of a church here in America that actually died and uh, began to sell Kentucky Fried Chicken. Somebody said, how did that happen? They said it was very easy. We sold uh, not Kentucky fried chicken. I should simply say fried chicken. They said, we began to sell fried chicken to help us meet our deficit. And we discovered that we were better at selling fried chicken than we were the gospel. So we decided to do what we did best. The, the existence of any church or group of churches cannot be taken for granted. We cannot peer into the future 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years ago, 50 years in the future. You can't take it for granted. Thousands of other churches have been closed. Many thousands turned into mosques. Lesson number one. Let's go on to lesson number two. Compromising churches. Compromising churches are weak churches. Compromising churches are weak churches. Come with me to Sardis. Sardis is the church about which Jesus said this, uh, you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. By the way, what an interesting diagnosis from Jesus who sees all things. They had the name, but actually there was no heartbeat. They were dead. If you were there today, you would discover, as we did, that here is a pagan temple. Right next to the pagan temple, three feet away, is a church with three feet only between them. Now, of course, these buildings uh, are uh, after the time of the New Testament. Uh, they were probably 3rd or 4th century. But as you look at it, you say to yourself, now how should we interpret that? There are two ways that you can interpret it. One way is to say that uh, the church said to itself, 
We want to be where the darkness is the greatest. We want to be right there where uh, all of these uh, terrible things are happening, where there is immorality, and we want to be a witness for Christ. That's an optimistic way to interpret it. But there's another way to interpret it. It could well be that the church felt comfortable next to the pagan temple. Maybe the church so absorbed the paganism around it that it felt as if it could be right next to the pagan temple and not even sense the dissidence or the conflict between the two. When you read the letters of Jesus to the churches of Revelation, you know how frequently he kept talking about the immorality. You have immorality in your church and you're not dealing with it. That's one area of compromise. Let me give you a second area of compromise and that is political. Just think with me for a moment. I told you that Justinian gave the opening speech for the dedication of the Church of Holy Wisdom in Istanbul. And by the way, I forgot to mention that one of the reasons I wanted to visit that church is because the architecture of Moody Church was inspired by the architecture of the Church of Holy Wisdom in Istanbul. But what is the emperor doing giving the opening speech? It was basically his church. Why was the emperor building this church? It really goes back to Constantine in 314 when Christianity, in effect, came to an end and Christendom was born and all of Europe is still under that spell. One day I was talking to the pastor many years ago who was the pastor of All Souls Church in London and I said, how did you become the pastor of All Souls Church in London? And he said, John Majors and the Queen appointed me. What in the world is the Queen and John Major doing appointing who will be the pastor of the church? One day I was in Norway and I said to the pastor, how did you become the pastor of the church in Norway? And he said, the King of Norway appointed me. This is one of the reasons for the deadness of the church in Europe. The fact that the church began to so rely upon the political establishment and that's what happened also in Turkey so that when Islam came and took those establishments away, the church collapsed with it. It did not retain its independence. That's a second kind of compromise is political where we think that we absolutely need politics to keep us alive. Well, we're happy here in America that we've always had an administration that was favorable to Christianity, but some of us fear, fear for the present and the future, and we wonder whether or not indeed that'll continue, and you know the hostility against Christianity. But the question is, can we survive without government supports? That's a whole other question. I could come back and talk about that at some point. Thirdly, you have doctrinal compromise. I'm sorry to say that by the time Islam came, and now we're talking about the year 1453, and even before that time, already then the church had compromised the gospel. It was entangled with various superstitions. Uh, grace was sacramentalized. And the whole idea that one could be saved through faith and actually transformed had already been lost. 1985, I was in China with Bishop Ding, who is the head of the Three Self Movement. That's the official church in China. And he said... I know who you folks are, he says, you're evangelicals. He said, if you traveled the length and breadth of China, you would find people who believe just like you do. And then he said this. 
He said, persecution wiped out theological liberalism in China. And I thought, well, of course. What liberal is willing to go to the wall for Jesus? For a purely human Jesus, only the true Christians stood against the flood of communism and its massacres. So I would like to say to you today that compromising churches become weak churches. That's lesson number two. Let's go on to lesson number three. Churches must accept persecution as a way of life. Churches must accept persecution as a way of life. And in America, it is not only coming from various sources, it's coming from our humanists, isn't it? And it's coming in waves in Washington today. Now, when Islam conquered a country, it always gave people, in effect, three options. One option was to convert. About 10 years ago, I was in Jordan, the country of Jordan, and we had a young tour guide, a young Muslim, 22 years old, very fine young man, and he was trying to convert us to the glories of Islam. And I said to him, if you, now just think of Jordan. It is a more liberal country. It is more tolerant. It is friends with Israel. He's 22, young. You'd think that he would be more tolerant. I said, if you had enough uh, weapons to overcome the United States and to force the United States to become as a, an Islamic country, would you do it? And his exact words were, of course, we have no choice. He said, because our desire is to rule the world. But he said, we'd give you an opportunity to convert first. So that oftentimes was offered to people when Islam came. The other possibility, of course, was to die and to be massacred. And there are stories in North Africa and throughout the Middle East where Christians were summarily executed. But there was also a third option that sometimes happened, and that is for Christians to live in Islamic countries. After 9-11, I remember watching TV and a man who is uh, speaking in behalf of Islam said, Oh, Islam is tolerant of Christianity. As a matter of fact, he said, in the early centuries, Islam actually protected the Christians. So I took the time to look up the Pact of Protection, Omar's Pact of Protection. In summary, it was really the terms of the Christians' surrender. For example, uh, it is said that the Christians could not build any houses that were bigger than those of Muslims. Um, the Christians could not propagate their faith. They could not witness they couldn't dress like Muslims. In other words, they had to remain distinct so that people would know who they were because another um, part of it was that when a Muslim came into the room, the Christians had to stand. And then, of course, most importantly, in Muslim teaching, Muslim men can marry Christian women, but no Christian man could ever be allowed to marry a Muslim woman. And that almost guaranteed the fact that within time, the church would become extinct. But there were Christians who were faithful in the midst of their persecution. Jesus said, I have sent you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Bonhoeffer in Germany said that the church will never really be strong until it sees suffering as a divine gift. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, the Apostle Paul said, For unto you it is given on behalf of Christ to suffer, excuse me, to believe on him. We all like that part of the verse. For unto you it is given who believe to, on behalf of Christ to believe on him and to suffer for his name. I believe that dark days are coming to the American church in very subtle ways. 
Even I think that the folks who are here with Bot Radio would agree. Things are happening with the FCC where you have localism being floated, and that would mean that various uh, committees would get together to, to make sure that broadcasters disseminate information that is of diversity for the whole community. And where all that will go, we can only wait to see. But let us remember, churches must accept persecution as a way of life. There's so much more I could say about that. The history of freedom of religion is incredibly interesting. Number four, number four, even when the church is in the hands of the devil, it is still in the hands of God. Your Bible is open. Revelation chapter 2, I love these words to the church in Smyrna. Jesus is writing, and I need to pick them up right there in verse 8. These are the words of who him, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions. I want to pause there for a moment. Some of you are going through great affliction. Affliction in your marriage, affliction in your family, physical affliction. You should be encouraged to know that Jesus knows. And Jesus comes to this church and says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and aren't, but they are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you that the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even unto the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. By the way, The reason I love that verse is, do you see the sovereignty of Jesus? He says, you shall have persecution 10 days. We're not sure exactly what that refers to. Is it 10 periods of persecution? Is it literally 10 days? But this much we know. If Jesus says that the persecution is going to be 10 days, all the powers of hell cannot make it 11. Because Jesus has spoken. And Jesus has sovereignty. You see this in the book of Job. Jesus says to Satan, I give Job into your hand. But even when Job was in the hand of Satan, Job was still in the hands of God. As Luther says, even the devil is God's devil. And we need to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and power and recognize that even when the church is in a, is being sifted and the chaff and the wheat are being blown away, a believer is kept by Christ all the way to his heavenly home. Now let me tell you a story that you may not have read about, but recently I read a book about it, and this is truly amazing. We're talking about Smyrna. And of course, in the early centuries, there was a very important martyr by the name of Polycarp who was martyred there. I wish I could tell you a story, but we have to hurry on. We're going to talk about Smyrna. And by the way, on your map, it is modern Izmir. We're going to talk about it 1922. That's not too long ago. I venture to say, as I look around this congregation, that very probably some of you are actually alive way back in 1922. Here's what happened. World War I ends. In World War I, Germany and Turkey were allies. Turkey supported Germany. The Ottoman Empire supported Germany. Germany lost, 
And that began the disintegration of what you have in history as the Ottoman Empire. And that's actually what Osama bin Laden referred to when he said 80 years ago we were disgraced. It was the fall of the Ottoman Empire. But because Turkey was therefore vulnerable, Germany having lost the war and Turkey being a part of that, the Prime Minister of Britain and the Prime Minister of Greece decided to get together and see whether or not they couldn't recapture Turkey and make it, in effect, a Greek province, which it essentially was when the Muslims came many centuries previously. It was a very bad idea. But they brought their armies primarily through Smyrna, that is where all the ships came and the soldiers came and they overran the land and it appeared as if the allies, from our standpoint, were going to win. As a matter of fact, at the Church of Holy Wisdom, the priests were actually able to uh, have mass again and everybody rejoiced that perhaps the day of Muslim rule was over. But then a man by the name of Ataturk, who is greatly admired in Turkey today, he got up an army and he began to fight the invaders and he fought them and he won through many battles. And there was no doubt that Turkey had won the war. But Smyrna was primarily Greek. At least all of the Greeks were doing the, the commerce of the city. And it was a large city. So what the Muslims did, that is the Muslim Turks, they came in and you can only imagine, I mean, raping and pillaging and doing things that we don't need to describe here. But then what they decided to do is to take petroleum and uh, pour it in certain sections and buildings of the city, and then they lit the city in retaliation. Now imagine the wind is blowing towards the sea. Tens of thousands of people, I mean hundreds of thousands of people are trapped. And the question that the people had to answer is this, do we die in the flames or do we drown in the sea? Most of them chose, choose, chose the sea. But the problem was that there were so many bodies that eyewitnesses say that even if you threw yourself on those bodies, even if you tried to throw yourself into the sea, you wouldn't even drown immediately because all of these bodies were floating like logs as far as the eye could see as tens of thousands died. In all, according to records, there were about two million who died totally if you look at it from the standpoint of this terrible, horrendous holocaust. Now, the question was, where were the Christians? Well, there were some who had been there in Smyrna. In fact, there were some American missionaries, some of whom were able to escape, and then later on they went back, and then they were chased out again. But the point is this. What happens when a whole city, including the believers, are thrown into an inferno like this? Where is God well, my point is simply this, that as far as believers are concerned, even when you are in the flames, even when you are in the hands of the devil, you are still in the hands of God, and God brings you safely all the way to the heavenly kingdom. And that's why Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, they're fresh out of ideas because there's nothing else they can do. He says, rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. My friend to you today, I do not want you to be afraid. Because no matter what the future holds, we have the absolute confidence that ultimately we as believers are in God's hands. Now think of Jesus. He's the great example here. 
He was in uh, the devil's hands. In fact, the Bible says wicked hands nailed him to the cross. And yet there as he dies, what are his parting words? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. And Jesus dies in the hands of God, though he was put to death by the hands of wicked men. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a passage where Jesus, when they're coming to get him, it almost gives you chills. Jesus said, today, this hour of darkness is yours. Today, you win. But the last chapter had not been written. And our last chapter has not been written. Even when you're in the hands of the devil, you are still in the hands of God. Let's go on to a fifth lesson. Lesson number five is simply this. The point of controversy, the point of controversy between Christianity and Islam is always the cross of Jesus. Come with me to the Church of Holy Wisdom. And if you were to come to the balcony and walk around the balcony, you'd discover that part of the original masonry had crosses chiseled or not chiseled, but crosses that were really a part of the original masonry because remember, it was an Eastern Orthodox Church. And they emphasize the cross. But today, every one of those crosses is chiseled out. And my Muslim guide explained to me that they are either defaced or chiseled out because no Muslim can ever pray in the presence of the cross. Now, there are two reasons for this. Number one, because during the days of the Crusades, the Crusaders actually fought under the banner of the cross. It was a bad idea. The idea of the Crusades to liberate uh, the Palestine was not a bad idea. That may have been perfectly legitimate, but these crusades were run badly. They should have been uh, standing armies, not uh, this conglomerate of people. And, and of course, there were atrocities that were committed, but the atrocities of the crusaders were not uh, standing by themselves. The atrocities from the other side equaled or exceeded the atrocities that they did, but either way. But there's a second reason. And that is because in Islam, it is believed that Jesus did not die. Surah 4, 157 to 160 says, Indeed, the Jews thought that they had crucified him, but they crucified him not. And there are a lot of uh, explanations as to whom they crucified. Some people think they crucified Jesus. Excuse me. Some people think that they crucified uh, Judas in the place of Jesus. Various explanations. But the average Muslim will tell you, oh, we honor Jesus more than you do because we think that God thought so much of him that he wouldn't allow him to die. What God did is uh, he simply took him directly to heaven. By the way, is it true that Islam honors Jesus more than we do because we actually believe that Jesus died? I hope that you can answer that. Let me give you a quick explanation. The cross is God at his best. Wow. God at his best because you have God's inflexible holiness and you have God's love. They collided together and they were resolved there. See, love wanted to redeem, but justice says, no, you can't because there has to be a payment for sin. And there on the cross, there was a payment for sin so that love would be free to redeem. And today, we have redemption through his blood. And the Apostle Paul says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm so glad that this church here has a cross behind me. And you know, if you go to Europe today, you discover that in hospitals, the Catholic hospitals, 
crucifixes are being taken down so that they will not offend Muslims. And I know that even here in the United States, there have been churches who have taken down their cross, lest they offend Muslims. From my heart to yours, has the church of Jesus Christ in America become so anemic and so weak and so politically correct and so, um, well, I've already said enough about it. Have we really come to that? May it never be that we would take down a cross. May it be that we would glory in the cross. May we be willing to take any suffering that is connected to the cross because it is there on the cross that God redeemed us. And God forbid that we should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed. Let me give you a sixth lesson. Jesus knew that in every church, in every church there would be those who get it and those who don't. We don't have time to read all the letters tonight, but you can do that on your own. In every one of the letters, Jesus always says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I read that as a boy and I thought, well, most people that I know do have ears. What's the problem here? But some of you women know what it's like to have a husband who hears the words, but he just doesn't get it. He doesn't really hear. Jesus knows that every church has those who hear and those who don't. I have a friend in Washington with the National Religious Broadcasters who says some people won't wake up until they go to church some morning and discover that it's locked. And then they'll say, wow, whatever happened to America? With all of the things that are going on where there is a concerted effort to criminalize all public expressions of Christianity in the so-called public square. Everything has to be criminalized. You can't pray in the name of Jesus. You can't do this. But, you know, the Muslim religion is not going to accept that. They are not going to live within their sphere of separation because if you know anything about Islam, it is politics. It is the public sphere. It is, it is everything. And when I wrote that book that I referred to earlier, the United Nations was debating a proposition that would make all criticism of Islam a crime. Do you know who get? Wilders is in the Netherlands. He made a movie about, um, about the way in which Islam treats women and he has been tried for hate speech. And uh, what he's really saying is, is that Europe has already given up all options, all ability to criticize Islam. And as Islam multiplies and as the percentages grow, the mouths of the Christians are being closed Jesus knew that in every church there would be those who get it and those who don't. But sometime if you want to be blessed, you wake up some morning and say, you know, I really want to be blessed today. What you do is you read those seven letters and read what Jesus said would be the rewards of those who are overcomers. It'll take your breath away. I'm not making this up. Jesus said, he who overcomes to him I shall grant to sit with me on my throne even as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. We sitting on the throne of the universe with Jesus. Can you even imagine it? Now, I've never yet met a Christian who didn't want to be an overcomer, but I've met plenty of Christians who don't want anything to overcome. Uh, the minute God brings something to overcome into their lives, they complain, they fight against it. Jesus said, you overcome. 
and you'll sit with me on my throne. And that leads me to number seven. Number seven. Things are not what they appear to be. Things are not what they appear to be. Oh, folks, if you miss everything, don't miss that. They're not what they appear to be. Come with me to the 1500s. Martin Luther is there in Germany, where, God willing, I will be actually next month. You can go to our website. Maybe there's still an opportunity for you to come with us on a tour to the sites of the Reformation that begins at the end of May and will be in many Luther sites. But Luther is there, and the, the Ottoman Turks, uh, 1453, they take Constantinople. After that, they begin to take various countries, and all kinds of reports come back to him about heads that are being lopped off, because in Islam, the cutting off of the head is very important. It shows the superiority of Islam over Christianity, etc. And Luther is distraught, but he writes a book about the Turks, and some misunderstandings that he had uh, been involved in, which I won't get into. But basically what Luther says in his own sarcastic way, he says, clearly it appears as if we believed in the wrong God. We don't have reports like this. We can't brag about the number of people we have killed and the number of countries that we have conquered. I mean, I guess we believed in the wrong God, he says. But then he says this, what does a Christian do when he looks around him and it seems as if God isn't on his side and it is the other side that is winning all of the victories? He says, what does a Christian do? And then he answers and he says, at that a time like that, Christians believe God's bare word. And they know that in the end, Jesus Christ is going to triumph. As King of kings, Lord of lords, God of all gods, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether, whether that is Krishna or Buddha or Muhammad. Everyone is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord because we have read the last chapter and we believe God's bare word and we do not believe that the superiority of one religion over another is determined by how many heads have been made to roll. Come with me to China. It is the Boxer Rebellion. The Chinese authorities wanted to rid Christianity from all influence in China. They go to a Christian school and they put out a cross right on the uh, step. And they say to the students, if when you get out of the school, if you, when you walk out, if you step on the cross, that means that you despise it and will let you live. But if you walk around it in honoring the cross, we shoot you. First eight students stepped on the cross and lived. Number nine, a girl. Praise that God will give her the grace to do what she knew she should. And she walked around the cross in honor of it and was shot. And all the other students in the school followed her example. Let me ask you something today. Were they winners or losers? You know, there's some people who say, well, why didn't they just step on the cross and tell Jesus in their heart they don't really mean it? <laughs> they knew better than that. Listen, my friend. It is not necessary for us to win in this life in order to win in the next The whole history of martyrdom shows that. That's the reason that martyrdom is so highly prized in the New Testament, is dying for Christ. You do not have to win. And by the way, the church has had to learn throughout the centuries what we in America are going to have to learn, namely that, very important, 
that we can be faithful even without freedom. And we're going to continue to preach the gospel no matter what penalties are put upon us if we take certain positions regarding homosexual marriage. Hey, we're in it for the long haul. And we want to be faithful within our context. I hate to tell you this. It's the first time I've said it, but I agree with a friend of mine who says, we've lost the culture war. We've lost the culture war. What we need to do now is to invigorate the churches and teach the churches how to live within a culture that is hostile to Christianity. That's really where it's at. And that leads me actually to... Um, by the way, we have two different narratives as to how things are going to end. You know that in Islam, it is believed that Jesus will return. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know that that's why the eastern gate supposedly is closed. Jesus is going to come to Jerusalem, Islam teaches. He's going to destroy all crosses. He's going to force everyone to be a Muslim, and then he will die a natural death and be buried next to Muhammad. But you and I know it's going to end very, very differently. Wow. A verse comes to mind. He will return in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory to his power of his power. My friend, if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior today, today is your opportunity to come to the protection of Jesus, who when you believe in him, credits you with his righteousness so that you can belong to him forever. It's the best news you can ever do. And God may have brought you here tonight for that reason, to believe on Christ, to trust him, and be saved. Well, folks, it's time for me to bring the plane down. I can already see the tarmac. You can put up your tray tables and put your seat in its upright position because we are coming for a landing. Number eight, we have to prepare the next generation for what it will face. Come with me to the pastor's conference at Moody Bible Institute. A number of years ago, we had a lecture by a man who converted from Islam to Christianity. And by the way, tens of thousands of Muslims are being converted to Christ all over the world. And you know you don't know about it and you can't know about it because in Islam, as you know, if word got out, many of these are secret believers. I hope that you take the time to read the book as I have entitled Son of Hamas. What a story of a, of a boy brought up with his father being one of the found, seven founders of Hamas. comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. I heard him speak several weeks ago at a luncheon that I was at. I mean, people are coming to Christ when they see the love of Christians, when they begin to understand what the gospel is all about. Many, many are being saved. And that's why you and I should befriend as many Muslims as we can, not in order to just try to convert them, but to show them the love of Christ and let God do the converting. He will, he will bring situations and opportunities to witness, but the main thing is that they may see your love. Do I have time to tell you just one story? I mean, here's a man. You have time? Okay. Not much happening here after this meeting, is it? I mean, it's Monday night. <laughs> here's a man who comes to the United States. This is a different story. His book is entitled The Blood of Lambs. I happen to have met him. He comes to the United States with the intention of doing terrorism.
He's in a severe accident. He is laid up for many weeks, and he's loved on by Christian doctors who just love him and love him and take care of him. And he is distraught. He says, we have the true religion, and yet look at how much love they have, and we're taught to hate. And you know, as a result of that, in desperation, he cried up to God finally in his own room and said, Allah, are you there? Total silence. He cried up, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are you there? And he heard a voice. Never underestimate what God is willing to do with those who desperately seek him. And today he's going up and down the lengths of this country, instructing churches how to understand and witness to the Muslims among us. What we have to do, and I am bringing the plane down, it's just that we had a little turbulence and we had to make an extra circle around the airport. All right, this man gives a lecture on Islam, what it would be like if America were under Sharia law. Later on, I met him, and I said, let's have coffee together. We were talking about what to do, and I said, finally, in desperation, I said, I guess we just have to train the next generation to be willing to die for the faith, train them how to be martyrs. And he took his finger and pointed it right at my chest like this and said, exactly. He says, that's what God is calling you to do, is to train the next generation how to die for Jesus. I thought, I don't remember that as being part of the job description when I went to Moody Church so many years ago. Folks, we have to give our lives for the next generation. You and I probably will not have to die for Jesus. But what about our children? What about our grandchildren? Are they going to have the strength and the courage and the deep personal conviction that Jesus is worth dying for? That's the question. And let me say this. If we can settle that question in our hearts, we can look at America and we can say, America, welcome to your future. With God's help, we're ready. And if you will, let us pray. Father, we want to thank you today for Jesus. Thank you that he is the conqueror. Thank you, Father, that he is a victor. And thank you that those of us who know him, we love him because he redeemed us. For those who are here tonight who've never trusted him, we pray. For all of the Muslim friends that you've brought to America, we pray. Help us to love them, to care about them, and to represent Jesus well to them. And we pray today that you will invigorate our young people, that they may have the strength, the courage, the character, and the deep conviction that Jesus is worth it. We ask in his blessed, lovely, holy name. Amen.